Good morning. Today's reading, the first one is Exodus 12, 21 through 27. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood, into the basin, and put some of the blood on the top of the both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does the ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our houses when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The second reading is Hebrews 10, 1 through 11. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to you your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in coordinates with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to you your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, and again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Word of the Lord. Well, for those of you who, who read our church newsletter, you may have seen my article for December where I talked about my love of music. 
So I don't play an instrument, and I can't sing to save my life. But I have always been drawn to music, as I know that many of you are. And there are some songs that can move me like nothing else can. I grew up listening to very particular Christmas music, to Bing Crosby and Andy Williams and Johnny Mathis. My parents typically played the same three albums on repeat over and over and over throughout the holiday season. But I never really had a favorite Christmas song until I came to faith as a teenager. I was 18 years old and in Bible college when we were rehearsing for a Christmas concert and the song Oh Holy Night came on and it stopped me dead in my tracks. Obviously, I had heard that song before, but never as someone whose faith in Christ had begun to transform me. The lyrics took my breath away, and they still do. I have known for many years that I would one day do an Advent series on this song, and I am so glad that that day has come. Now, for those of you who like things done in an orderly fashion, this series might drive you crazy. This is your one and only warning. Not only am I not doing all of the lyrics to the song, but the lyrics that I am doing, I am doing out of order. So I just need you to get over that. You can take a minute, get over that real quick. The lyrics to this song hold so much. In fact, this one song really tells the entire gospel story, which is why you may be surprised to learn that neither the authors of the lyrics or the music were Christ followers. The song goes all the way back to France in 1847. The story goes that there was a man named Placid Capot de something French that I can't pronounce. And he came from a family of winemakers, but after losing one of his hands in an accident, he became more well-known for his poetry than for his winemaking. And so despite the fact that Placid was not a churchgoer, the local parish priest knew that he was a brilliant poet. And so he commissioned Placid to pen a poem for the church's Christmas Eve mass. Placid, who would later call himself an atheist, still wanted this poem to be special. And so he knew for the sake of his audience that it had to have its basis in scripture. And so he turned to the gospel of Luke and he imagined what it must have been like to witness the birth of Jesus. And while on a train from his hometown to Paris, Placid penned the words to Cantique de Noël. He knew immediately that this poem needed to be set to music. And so he turned to his musician friend, Adolf Adams, for help. Despite being Jewish and therefore not believing in the words to this particular poem about Jesus, Adolf's friendship with Placid meant so much to him that he went ahead and set this poem to music. The piece was performed three weeks later at the local midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Beyond what they ever could have imagined, the song began to spread like wildfire around the Catholic churches of Europe. That is, until it was discovered that both of the authors were atheist and Jewish, respectively, at which point the song was denounced by the church and deemed unfit for church services. Despite the church's best efforts, however, the song had already become so well-liked among the French people that they continued to sing it against the church's wishes. It was a decade after that that a reclusive American writer would bring the song to the United States. His name was John Sullivan Dwight, and he was a self-proclaimed abolitionist who believed that Christ came to free all people. And so he knew that the song needed to be heard by the American people. 
And so Dwight translated the text into English, and Reborn was the song, O Holy Night. There's a book by the name, it's called Stories Behind the Best Love Songs for Christmas. And they tell the story that after Dwight died, and while Placid and Adolph were old men, on Christmas Eve in 1906, a university professor and former chief chemist for Thomas Edison did something that prior to that moment was deemed impossible. Using a brand new type of generator, he spoke into a microphone. And for the very first time, a man's voice was broadcast over airwaves. What did he choose to recite? The birth of Christ from the Gospel of Luke. And when he finished reciting that, he picked up his violin and he played O Holy Night, which became the first song ever played on the radio. Now, I could spend an entire sermon talking about how crazy it is that neither of the authors of the lyrics or music believed in Jesus, because that is a cool story in and of itself, but I don't want to derail us any further. In fact, I want to dive right in for this morning. Now that we know a little bit about the history of this amazing song, what I really want to do is spend some time talking about what is behind the lyrics themselves. And so for this morning, as you already know, we are looking at the lyric that says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Have you ever had that experience where you just knew that something wasn't right? And I don't mean those creepy scenes and scary movies where people walk into a house and they know that someone's behind them. I mean those times in life when you just feel like things are not as they should be. I can't help but wonder if that is part of the reason why people struggle so much around the holidays. Whether it's movies or old family traditions or whatever it is, there there is just so much pressure around the holiday season for everything to be absolutely perfect. You want your house to look perfect. You want your dinner to taste perfect. You want to buy the perfect gifts. You want your family to act perfectly or as close to that as your family is capable of getting. And because we set our expectations so unbelievably high, so many people end up disappointed. Nothing went as it was supposed to. Things aren't as they should be. And when things aren't as they should be, we feel it. We really feel it. And to me, that is part of what this line from O Holy Night is talking about. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. In other words, for a very, very long time, we have known that the world is not as it was supposed to be. And we are longing for the day when everything will be set right again. We go back to this one particular story very often. It's a story that we call the fall in the church. It's the story of Adam and Eve. And we reference it so often because it was the story that changed absolutely everything. God created us to be in perfect relationship. In perfect relationship with him and in perfect relationship with each other. And we were for like five minutes. Adam and Eve walked in perfect relationship with God. They wanted for nothing. They longed for nothing. They knew that God was providing for them everything that they needed. And they were also in perfect relationship with each other. Jealousy did not exist. Bitterness, resentment, grudges, eye-rolling, name-calling, none of it existed until that apple or whatever the fruit was that Eve and Adam ate from. They believed the lie that was sold to them that they could be more like God, and so she ate 
and then he ate. And the very moment that God came to question them, Adam threw Eve right under the bus, as if that had always been humanity's instinct. And that is what happened. Sin became humanity's instinct. By just the very next generation, jealousy and hatred and anger became so ingrained within the human race that we went from these perfect relationships with one another to jealousy and anger that became so real that one brother took the life of the other brother. Sin took over just that fast. And I suppose if sin took over that quickly from one generation to the next, that it is no wonder that we are where we are in 2019 where every single generation below mine has never known a day of their life where we have not been at war somewhere in the world, where it was actually national news last week that the city of Chicago went an entire day without a reported shooting, where gone are the days of agreeing to disagree, that now you are either for me or against me, where our leaders, whether they're political or religious, it doesn't seem to matter, are modeling hatred toward those who disagree with us. I suppose it's not surprising that sin has become what it has. We know then, we knew then as we know now, that things are not as they are supposed to be. And so we long Or as the song says, we pine. We long for the day when civility and kindness will become the norm, where peace would reign. We long. And we have been longing for so long. Look at all of Scripture. How many of the Psalms have the phrase, How long, O Lord? Or let's look at the beginning of Habakkuk. That's not a book we look at very often. This is how the book starts. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How long, O Lord? Now some of you know, speaking of songs that move us, that I happen to be a fan of the band U2. And I realize that not all of you would consider their shows to be church-like, but I'm telling you that there have been multiple moments at their concert where I was taken to church for sure, but there is one moment that is unlike any other. This concert was at Soldier Field. Now, when the Bears were good at football, and could, sorry, Tim, um, and could sell out a stadium, the stadium holds 61,000 people in the seats. This U2 concert had over 68,000 people. It was nighttime. They had just finished a spectacular performance. And at the very end of their encore, they started singing their song, 40. Now, that song happens to be taken right out of scripture, from Psalm 40. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned and heard my cry. And then the chorus of the U2 song just repeats this phrase over and over and over again. It says, how long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? 
So imagine nearly 70,000 people singing that song together in the dark of night outside under the stars. How long? How long, O oh Lord? Maybe you have asked that question in your own life. How long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to watch this person that I love suffer with sickness? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to wake up with the weight of grief? It's been six months. It's been six years. How long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to watch my adult kids live a life apart from you? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to deal with pain? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to watch my family torn apart by past hurt and anger? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to carry the scars that somebody else caused? How long, O oh Lord, do I have to carry this unforgiveness, this anger, this resentment? How long, O oh Lord, do we have to watch kids get killed in their own schools? How long, O oh Lord, do we have to watch racism at play every single day? How long, O oh Lord, do we have to watch corrupt systems led by corrupt leaders who don't seem to care who they hurt in the process? How long, O oh Lord? This and so many other things, this is what it means to be a world that is sick with sin and has been for a very long time. This is what it means to long for the day when all will be made new again. And we know, we know that we each play a part in the brokenness of this world. Every selfish move we make, every hurtful thing we say, every injustice that we turn a blind eye to, every cruel joke that we laugh at, every material possession that we hoard as our neighbor goes without, we are part of the brokenness and we feel it in our very bones. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And we know it. Those of you who have already said yes to Jesus, we know, we have seen glimpses of what it is supposed to be like, haven't we? Maybe you first saw a glimpse of this when you were at a place like camp, surrounded by other people who were all trying to do their very best to live life the way that Jesus calls us to. You got to do daily devotions and worship with your friends. You learned new things. You were reading your Bible. You were having fun. You didn't have very many worries. You felt so close to God. It was a glimpse of the way that things are supposed to be. Some of you have caught those glimpses when you participated or were witness to a completely loving and selfless act. Some of you, I hope, have seen glimpses of this within your own marriages, in a moment where your spouse put your needs above their own just because they love you. Can you imagine if all of creation caught those glimpses and wanted more? What if everyone around us simultaneously decided to start paying attention to the things that were broken, and all together as an entire society, we longed for all of the broken things to be made right again. That is some of what we are praying for when we as Christians pray the phrase, thy kingdom come. We pray that because we have a hope. We have a hope that we seriously underestimate in this world. We pray that because we are on a certain path. We are on a certain trajectory toward redemption. 
We have hope in a God who restores all things and who will one day make all things new. And we seriously underestimate the power of that hope. We underestimate it because we'd rather God restore and redeem things right now. When we are in the midst of pain, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of longing, of course we want and wish and hope and pray for God to make things new right now. And when he doesn't, it hurts. You know that passage from Exodus that Marlene read for us a few minutes ago? It's a well-known passage referred to as the beginning of Passover, when God passed over the homes of the Israelites who had put the blood of the lamb around their door frames. Well, a few chapters before that one in Exodus 3, we see God telling Moses that he has a plan. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. I have seen their pain. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. Now, God was talking about a very specific plan here, whereby he would remove the Israelites from the land of slavery and give them, a, give them a brand new land, a land that he was promising to them. But this, this is the very heart of God. And we see God say this again to us. I have seen their pain. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering. And so I am coming down to rescue them. The beginning of that plan is what we await this Advent season. I said to the worship team earlier that this is a strange time in the life of the church, this Advent season, where we are caught between the already and the not yet of God's unfolding plan. How long, O oh Lord? Well, now, and also not yet. So what are we supposed to do during this in-between season? What do we do as people who acknowledge that long lay the world in sin and error pining? Is there anything we can do in the meantime? And the answer is yes. There absolutely is. If God's kingdom is both now and not yet, then we can grieve and lament the not yet, but we also have work to do in the now. We can make choices every single day to better reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And every choice that we make to reflect God in our lives brings God's kingdom one step closer. Every life that is changed by the hope of Jesus Christ, well, it points to another life that is going to be changed, which points to another life that is going to be changed it's why it is so important for us to share our stories with other people. That's why we talk about that so much. There's a verse from 1 Peter 3 that says, always be prepared. Do you know that one? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, everyone, who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Why should we always be prepared to tell others about our hope? Because there are people in your daily lives who are walking around without it. That should break our hearts. That reality should move us to live differently. 
and to share freely. This life is hard. For those of us who know and love Jesus, this life is hard. We are not free from pain or suffering. There is no way around it, but there is a better way through it, and that only comes with the hope of Jesus Christ. Do I sound too churchy when I say that? Probably. Should I let my worry over sounding too churchy stop me from sharing about the hope that I have? Man, I hope not. Because it's too important. We should see this as a life or death move. Because it is. People are suffering and dying without the hope of Jesus. And we're all over here going, I hope I don't sound too religious. This isn't about being religious. It's about sharing your own stories. How did you make it through your divorce? How did you make it through the death of your loved one? How did you make it through your diagnosis? How did you handle your angry child or your mentally ill sister or your own anxiety or depression? If you made it through those things or you currently are making it through those things by Christ alone, then tell people that. If the hope of Jesus sustained you through a horrible season of life, then tell people that. I don't care if you bring anyone to religion. I don't even really care if you bring someone to our specific church. I care if you live your life in such a way that you help someone else know the hope of Jesus Christ. Use religious words. Use irreligious words. I don't care. Just do whatever you can and use whatever words you have to help people without hope find hope in Jesus. Help people this Advent season know that they are not alone. Help the people in your daily life to feel seen. Help them to know that they matter. Help them to understand that you do not need to agree with them to love them. Help the people in your life to know that help is available and that hope is transformative. Help them to know that they are worthy of being loved and that their story and their life are worthy of being redeemed. And help them to know that that is exactly what Jesus is going to do for them because you watched him do it for you. Christmas reminds us that God sees us, that God hears our cries for help, for help that our suffering matters to God, and ultimately, that God is coming to rescue us. So this Advent season, what are you longing for? Can you ask God to give you the courage to ask him for the thing that you are longing for this Advent? As we begin this new season of already and not yet, what feels broken in your own life? Can you name that before God this morning? And ultimately, when you think of those things, those things that you are longing for, those things that feel broken in your life, can you pause for a moment to consider how your life and your perspective may change knowing that God sees you, that God hears your cries for help, and that God is coming to rescue you. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, but help and hope 
are on the way and in fact are already here as we gather at the table this morning. This is a powerful time in the life of the church to gather at the table. As we are in this season of the not yet, the already, and the not yet, we gather at the table and we're reminded of the night when Jesus was gathered with his disciples. They didn't know what was coming. They had him there with, with them. They didn't know what was about to happen. But he provided them hope when he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. He told them that this is the the cup of the new covenant. It's a new promise that he's coming to rescue us. And so every time we eat the bread and every time we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, which also means that we are proclaiming that he is coming back, that his hope is already here, and that hope of the ultimate redemption of the world is still to come. Let's pray together. God, would you help us this morning to remember, to remember these gifts in light of what Advent means? That as we consider all of the things that we are longing for, that as we consider all of the things that are broken in our own life, that as we consider the power of what it means that you are entering into those things, God, would you remind us that with these gifts you have given us everything we need? That even as we wait, you are here in these gifts. We pray all these things in your name.